You probably heard about Tunisia. Yeah, you're right, that country in North Africa, the birthplace of the Arab Spring. Well, it was kind of the only success story after a wave of protests in the region that toppled at least four Arab presidents. And it left Tunisia with a nascent democracy. But now the country has a serious constitutional crisis. Some are even calling it a coup. Hello everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan. Welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Our guest is going to help us grasp what's been going on in Tunisia. Hello, my name is William Lawrence. I am joining you from Washington, D.C. And I teach political science and international affairs at American University School of International Service. Brilliant. Thanks for being with us today, William. So let's start with a basic question. What is the president trying to do? He's trying to implement his own vision for the Tunisian state and Tunisian political system, a vision shared by very few Tunisians, but supported by a minority of Tunisians because they were frustrated with the lack of political and economic progress after their revolution. So they've decided in some numbers to go along with it to see if he can produce better results. But what is this vision, William? Are we talking about reform or dictatorship? How about reform through dictatorship? Well, we've seen that before in history, haven't we? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, about two years before he became president, but there were some indications that he might be interested, or, or let's say 18 months out, a group of us formed a group on Facebook in French where we're comparing him to Napoleon. And uh, we named it after a French scholar from the beginning of the 19th century, scholar and politician, because it was clear from the beginning he wanted to rule by plebiscite. He wanted to change the system by diktat. He wanted to make a revolution from above with populist support from below, exactly as he wanted to do it. It's very much on the model of Muammar Gaddafi's uh, Jamahiriya system, in which all political parties and political organizations are banned unless they are formed by the brother leader on behalf of the revolution, and everyone has to line up in lockstep. Here's what President Qais Saeed had to say. Based on Chapter 72 of the Constitution, I announce today, at this historical moment, the dissolution of the Repetitive Council to protect the state. I mean, what's the bottom line here? Has the president concentrated too much power ultimately in his hands at this point? He wants to grab all of the powers of Tunisia, as he did following the July 25th coup and late September 2021 decrees, continuing through to the president. He wants to take all the powers and then implement the constitutional vision that he wants. And let me just say, I interviewed former President Marzouki on this when he was visiting Washington, and he told me in no uncertain terms that he had recruited Said into the constitution writing process in 2012 and 2013, and all of his ideas have been rejected by the group. Interesting. There's another layer to this. Yeah, he's implementing... Is this revenge? Yes. He's implementing the vision rejected by Tunisia's political class. And that vision was about compromise, right? And about sort of, let's say, deal-making and lowest common denominators and vision by consensus. And you may remember that the constitutional debates went on for two years until 90% of the constitutional assembly was in agreement as opposed to, let's say, the Egyptian 
version of 2012, which was 51% solution, which angered the 49%. Well, now we have a 1% solution, which is one guy's vision, which no one has really signed on to. And when you ask the Tunisians who support him, are you in favor of banning all political parties? They say no, but that's what the president wants. You mentioned the Constitution. Are the president's actions considered unconstitutional? Yes, these are entirely unconstitutional moves in every sense. He misread Article 80 of the Constitution and Article 72 more recently for these moves and says that he can, under emergency powers, which are for things like wars and invasions or earthquakes or something, that the president can take power for 30 days. He's turned that into an 18-month ordeal and said it was about things like corruption. So do you agree with those who say this is basically a coup? I didn't early on, only Mm. because it doesn't resemble the most categories of coups. And it took a couple of weeks for the specialists to say, okay, well, this might be an autogolpe, a self-coup on the Latin American model, right? Where the president, Mm. one branch of government takes over the whole government, right? Or it might be a constitutional coup. The problem is that self-coup and constitutional coup don't really describe what happens. So I finally settled a few months ago, and I've been using this. I'm calling it a presidential coup. That makes more sense. And that's what he did. He took one branch of government, which he controlled, and took over all the other branches. Do you think he ever wants to return power to parliament? No, not this parliament. What he wants is this hourglass system with the power from the bottom, sort of nothing in the middle, and him at the top with the administrative apparatus. And a sort of layers of committees, like in Qaddafi's system, that produce from local non-party elections for people that agree with them, and the only people that agree with them could run in elections. And they would produce through layers of committees and other elections a national parliament, which would be a rubber stamp for him. So this basically means no return to the constitutional system as they know it in Tunisia then? Absolutely not. And just to throw a lifeline to the process that some people have been trying to do, you know, he did announce very recently a national dialogue with the participation of the four members of the quartet that got the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015 Mm -hmm. for solving Tunisia's last constitutional and political crisis. The problem, and he's trying to bring in the quartet and nobody else. So it's not a quartet that he's bringing in to negotiate with the opposition, which is what happened in 2013. He's bringing in the quartet to simply say, are you the quartet going to endorse what I'm doing and agree that we should exclude the entire political class from participating because they're all corrupt and they're all evil? All right. So let me play devil's advocate here. And the president, of course, blames political parties for the mess, saying they were too busy squandering the public interest on infighting between themselves. Does he have a point? Yes, he definitely has a point. And they did have a lot of infighting before and after the coup. Where he loses credibility is that he made the infighting worse. And Tunisian friends of mine, both pro and anti-Said, often make the Trump comparison. And also, Tunisia was subject to a lot of Russian troll farms and disinformation coming out of Jordan and the Gulf countries that tried to make the divisions worse. So yes, there was division. Yes, there was infighting. There were even fights on the floor of parliament. What Saeed did is he took this and he made it worse by trying to further turn the parties against each other, which were already, again, as I said, being influenced by social media, fake news, all that kind of stuff, and started calling them traitors and treasonous and using, you know, animal and insect images, insects and parasites and viruses. 
Is public opinion turning against the president? Because it seemed like he had some support at the beginning of his announcements. Yes. So I study the public and private polls very closely. And there are some organizations that do very rigorous polls, but don't publish them. So I've looked at a lot of these polls. and the way I was, Like who? Who are we talking about? For example, there's an organization like IRI, International Republican Institute, that's been polling regularly for years and hasn't published several polls. And they, among others, Insight is the best public polls. But if you sort of summarize all the polls I've looked at, Saeed's gone from roughly 70 to 90 percent support immediately following the coup to 20 to 35 percent support now. That's a big drop. Depending on how you ask the question. And most of the drop, just to be sure, is not that they're upset about politics because they didn't really care either way if there isn't an economic dividend. The population's upset about economics. Is the president trying to divide political parties from the trade and professional unions by being very selective in who he includes in the so-called national dialogue? Absolutely. And one of the things that worked in his favor was that grosso modo, more than 50% of Tunisia's prominent political NGOs were with him in the coup, whereas the quasi-totality of the political parties, about 80% of parliament and the parties, rejected the coup right from the beginning, although they didn't really get organized until the last two or three months in terms of a coherent and cohesive opposition. So he could turn the civil society against the parties. However, in the last six to eight weeks, even the CSOs are turning against him. And the opposition parties, well, this is what they're saying. The people in Tunisia are holding on to the constitution. We reject the president's decision to dissolve the Legislative Council as it's a continuation of his decisions taken on July the 25th, which we rejected and considered as a coup. This is a continuation of the coup. So what do you make of how the opposition, particularly Anahda, how are they handling this situation? They handled it quite badly from the beginning, in my opinion, mainly because they were inert. And you may have seen along the way about 117 prominent MPs and supporters defected from the party over that issue relatively early on last fall. They're now in starting another party, but there's several, you know, debates and disagreements within Nehada, some of which have been brewing for years over how strong types of positions it takes. And I think the best understanding here is an understanding of Algeria in the 90s and Egypt in 2013, where Islamist parties, either in power or posed, poised to be in power, were slammed by counter-revolutionary, you know, violent movements with the military behind them. And that will knock these parties out of power and set the country back, you know, decades often in terms of uh, political development. And so Nehda, having read those tea leaves and seen that history, said, we are just going to do not much and try to ride out this storm and not all be thrown in jail or pushed into exile or killed and tortured again. And that created a certain amount of stasis and paralysis. And they're just beginning to emerge from that now. What about the labor and professional unions? What do you make of how they're handling the crisis? There's been some dysfunctionalities there as well. Mostly, it's a generational divide, like the generational divide in the Nehda, which is driving a lot of the internal politics of Nehda. There's a generational divide in UGTT as well, between the more 
radical younger members, often Trotskyists or Maoists or various sort of flavors of Marxism, and the older generation, which is more accommodations with power, and used to being close to Tunisian autocrats in order to secure benefits for the working class. In this crisis, the upper management tried to cozy up to the autocratic leader to try to have a position of power and gain benefits with the rank and file. And the more radical members wanted more radical change, and they have been vocal. Let's break down that acronym for listeners so we don't confuse them. We're talking about the Tunisian General Labour Union, Labor Union. Right? Yep. which is, of course, a very powerful player on the political scene, right? Yeah, the two biggest parties, as you mentioned, sort of indirectly, are Nehda Party and UJTT. These are the only organizations in Tunisia with over a million members. Right, right. Talking about the UJTT, how their position has been evolving since the beginning? They were quite in favor. But now they seem a little bit not too excited about the idea of a national dialogue that excludes important parties. That's exactly right. And that evolution has been a bit disrupted and disjointed for the reasons I said, including their own internal politics and where Tunisian public opinion was going. But they're starting to find their feet, sort of the last to come to their senses in terms of the political class. But they're starting to get there. All that's left then in terms of the important sources of power in society then is, I guess, the security services. Are they still standing solidly with the president? Yes, and that surprises a lot of people. There's a lot of grumbling within the rank and file. Tunisian military, unlike a lot of Arab militaries, has a long tradition of independence and not making coups in Tunisia. And so it's been a tricky walk for them. Actually, one of the main debates in the U.S. debate over Tunisia has been whether or not to advocate for a cut to the military budget. And that's been really complicated in terms of U.S. politics. And there was also Ben Ali and his predecessor, Bourguiba, created a system in which the military wouldn't have enough power to take over the state. And the way in which iron-fisted Tunisian rulers, particularly Ben Ali, kept control of the state was not through the military, but through a very expanded police, a police force that was even larger than the military. And then this tricky thing happened when President Said was elected, in that the president controls foreign policy and the army, but not the interior ministry. And some of the early debates before problem was solved was Said's attempt to try to take over the police force you know, as a way of beginning his control of the country and beginning to grab control of institutions and of the street. And the parliament pushed back. And so one of the first things that Saeed did with the coup of July was quickly take over the Ministry of Interior and start to control Tunisia through the police in a way that would also protect him from having to control it through the military. Is any of that having much of an impact on some of the Western backers of Tunisia? Are they looking at this through the human rights perspective or continuing to look at much of, well, as they have for much of the Middle East over the decades and years, through the security prism? There's an opinion was divided in the US and divided in Europe from the beginning. There were those that kind of hoped that Said had Tunisia's best interests at heart and they were tracking public opinion, which was very much with them, willing to wait and see to some degree and issue tepid statements and have sort of soft pressure behind the scenes. And then there was a minority viewpoint that's become the majority viewpoint in the West that this is bad from the beginning. Suspensions of aid have started. So through the fall, American officials, many of whom I've interviewed, 
senior people in the course of my work grew frustrated, Saeed, to the point that they were just not even sort of dealing with it anymore. They'd lost all faith in Saeed. And that has led, in the case of the U.S., to de facto suspension of $500 million of Millennium Challenge Corporation aid, a comprehensive review passed by Congress and Biden recently with the recent budget to look at all of the assistance to Tunisia and possibly cut some of it. And then in the budget for next fiscal year, Biden has asked for a reduction by half of U.S. military assistance to Tunisia, which was the big bone of contention here in Washington over whether or not it would help or hurt to cut off the military from assistance, particularly given, and this gets to the other part of your question, what an important counterterrorism partner Tunisia is in a very dangerous part of the world. I mean, the most robust ISIS factions now and Al-Qaeda factions are in the Sahel and in the southern Maghreb, in these countries that we're talking about, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya. Tunisia is a partner in that struggle. And so cutting off Tunisia is a tough debate to make for both right. political and security reasons. That's where the U.S. is ending up now, given how bad things are politically in Tunisia. What's the chance of this tipping over into violence at some point? Quite good. And it depends what you mean by violence. But my former organization, Crisis Group, has been warning about violence for two years now, is coming. One thing that isn't well known is Tunisia, like Algeria and Morocco, has about 10,000 micro protests a year, usually about social issues, you know, and these often bleed into violence at the local level. Probably 20 times the Nehda party headquarters have been attacked by crowds before and after the coup. Many dozens of times local mayor's offices have been sacked and burned. Police get beat up sometimes, particularly when they're beating up on crowds. So that already happens before and after the coup. I think the real question is, how much more violent does it get and beyond the local? And do you have national level violence that then leads to some sort of civil war or breakdown into chaos or coup? And that's increasing, as I said, month on month. The worse the economy gets, the more dictatorial Saeed gets, the more he uses the police in violent ways against the population, cracks down on journalism, which it's already doing, but worse. Torturing us is happening a little bit worse and rounding people up and subjecting them to arbitrary prison detentions, you know, forming a class of political prisoners. Well, can the president survive then if he's losing the trade unions, professional unions, the biggest political parties never been happy with his moves, and now some of his Western backers? You know, is the Tunisian population going to take Saeed out? Not yet. That could be coming if the economy gets worse. Will the political opposition take him out? Probably not, because they voted out all his presidential degrees by just a month and a half ago. That's gone. Parliament said, you are wrong, President Saeed. But there's no consequences to their actions. I've been advocating since August for sanctions. We should be sanctioning all the people around Saeed who supported the coup. And we haven't. It's disgusting and made possible by the recent legislation, but the State Department hasn't moved in that direction. But in terms of Western support, unfortunately, the Western powers had their fingers to the wind a little bit, and they were trying to go with what the Tunisian population seemed to want. And so as support for Said has slipped, you know, the Western condemnations have increased, but is it too little too late? Because with coups, it's easy to end them earlier on. And if they consolidate for a year or two, Often they'll go on for 20 years or 10 years. Are we going to see some kind of new democratic constitutional and new democratic republican system, as the president claims? 
Probably. I think the referendum in July may happen, and it will probably have very high abstention. North Africans have a habit, including change of boycotting elections rather than other actions. And people feel better as they didn't support it, but they didn't actually cause change. They just boycotted. And the opposition parties, well, this is what they're saying. We want to launch a dialogue immediately to come up with a rescue plan and offer concrete proposals that are widely supported by Tunisia's political and social forces. This can only be achieved through a national dialogue, a non-exclusive national dialogue. So the national dialogue is not really going anywhere by the sound of it. With who? It's not national and it's not a dialogue. It's for four members of the quartet who haven't even agreed yet, who, by the way, have not been talking to each other for the last six months. I've checked. The leaders of these four positions are not even talking to each other, in part because UGTT was so much apparently in the president's pocket and the other three weren't as much. So will the December election happen? I would suspect it would be delayed, but he's going to try to make it happen. Well, he's sacked members of the Electoral Commission, though, right? The Independent Electoral Commission and appointed a few others. So I guess critics would say he's going to control it anyway. Yeah, so there are nine members, right? He sacked six and left three. He's going to try to do that and hold these elections in December. I suspect he'll be able to hold them if he's still in power. And I suspect it'll lead to a situation like Algeria of a very weak government not supported by the population. I think the main question is, will he be able to finish his three remaining term years in office? All right. Well, bring out the crystal ball and tell us <laughs> what you think, though. Will he or won't he? If I had to guess, it's a 51% he'll probably be able to survive it. But it's really a 51%. I think the 49% chance is he gets forced out uh, one way or another by a, by, a, by a military or police coup or set of phone calls forcing him to resign. And what will prompt it will be a major economic crisis. Won't be the first time somebody's kind of tinkled with election dates and extensions in Africa. Yeah, if he tries to hang on to power through extra-constitutional legal means, that's entirely possible. But he is an older man. He has very little support. Most of his closest advisors have quit. Notably, his closest advisor, Nadia Akesha, was whisked out of Tunisia with a direct intervention of President Macron in January and is now on social media and in the leaked tapes, being highly critical of the president and his psychological, you know, mental health situation. And so as this growing drumbeat of the president's not well and the president's not governing well, to all of our detriment grows, there will be an increasing chance that a combination of forces will come together to force him out. You know what? This has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. You're just so full of insight. Thank you so much, William, for coming in and sharing all of your experience with us. It's been a pleasure. And a big thanks to our listeners, too, for joining us. This episode was produced by Khaled Sultan, and our sound designer is George Elwir. Our lead engagement producer is Aya Al-Malik, and assistant engagement producer Munira Adosari. And, of course, we can't forget the big guy, executive producer Omar As-Saleh. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for joining us. For now, it's goodbye. <laughs>